Simple Suttas, a podcast on original Buddhism. Today I wanted to talk for a little bit about joy in meditation. Uh, first, I might just mention, if you've been watching these at all in order, I think I've gone back in time into the winter, but actually this is just springtime in Minnesota. You never know whether you're going to have a beautiful 70 degree day with everything melting and ducks and loons and geese and so on, or uh, or this. So uh, yesterday it was 60s and beautiful, and today it's 20s and frankly beautiful. <laughs> So, uh, a joy in meditation. Uh, I think for people that want to take meditation seriously, it's uh, a beautiful thing. They, they've seen benefits, they believe in what they're doing, and they want to do it with all their heart and soul. That's a, that's a beautiful thing can sometimes end up in a situation, certainly found myself in, where you're on retreat and there's a sense that things aren't going well. Uh, there isn't this uh, explosion of insight. Instead, what there is is painful body, racing mind, this uh, unbelievable sense that you you know, you left your family and other opportunities and you went to some strange retreat space. You did all these things and still, still, your mind, you just can't seem to uh, get control of your mind. There's a uh, beautiful story in the, in the Pali Canon about this where uh, Buddha had a, an attendant before Ananda. And uh, the idea of an attendant was it would be sort of a younger monk that, on the one hand, had the honor of being with the Buddha all the time, helping him with some of his, uh, his tasks, uh, everything from bringing him water to uh, kind of uh, being the person that interacted with townsfolk, set up meetings, things like that. Ananda was, uh, you know, far and away the most uh, famous attendant the Buddha ever had. But for all of them, there was this weird situation where on the one hand, you get to be near the teacher. You get to hear everything he has to say. You get to see how he lives. But on the other hand, you don't have as much time to practice. So, uh, I'm forgetting his name at the moment. I think it was Megia. Is that right? Anyway, uh, he came to the Buddha and said, uh, listen, I found this beautiful mango grove. I really want to go there and meditate. And the Buddha said uh, to him, yeah, now's not really a very good time. Could you, could you wait? And uh, Megia said, well, listen, uh, I really feel like if I did some intense, I'm sorry, I just got to show you this. This is really beautiful. <laughs> the swamp from the other day is now like a frost tipped swamp. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, Megia said, look, I, I, I really feel like I can make some great strides. Would you please, you know, just let me go do this thing. 
So the brother said, well, listen, I'm not going to stop you. He didn't phrase it quite like that. Megia goes uh, to meditate. It's, you know, you, you can sort of imagine him. Like, he's just, like, giddy with excitement. He's been hearing all these wonderful talks from the Buddha. He's ready to go. He finds a perfect spot under a big mango tree. Sits down. He's ready. It's enlightenment time. Here we go. And instead, it's like any of us, you know? You sit down and things start rushing in your mind. You're thinking about your family. You're thinking about what I need to do tomorrow. You're thinking, crud, is that a, an ant that's crawling on my foot? Or uh, am I just imagining it? Should I brush the ant off? Should I leave it alone? What am I doing here? <laughs> so he tries and tries and just has no luck. Now, a lot of teachers say there's no such thing as bad meditation. You're just, you know, developing your practice. I, I think it's half right, you know. Uh, on the one hand, you know, maybe at some deep level that's true. As long as you keep practicing, uh, you're going to have days that feel amazing, days that feel bad. It's not that you did, uh, you know, wasted your time by having a bad meditation. Sometimes these things happen. On the other hand, now let's be frank. You can have a bad meditation, right? So if I sit there and thoughts are coming up and coming up and I indulge in them, right? I allow myself to sit there and fantasize and think about what I'm going to do the next day. I will make no progress. And that, quite frankly, will be a bad meditation, right? Now, if I'm trying to do the practice and my skills are just not good enough, that's a different story altogether. I, my, my daughter was just practicing the piano and uh, learning a new piece sounded not very good. <laughs> so... She could sit there and not sound very good for 30 minutes or an hour, but be making tremendous progress. Right? Or she could sit there for 30 minutes or an hour, sound not very good, and be wasting her time, you know, going over the stuff that she already knows, not practicing in a diligent way, not trying to have consistent fingering. And that, frankly, would be a bad practice. You can literally do more harm than good with that kind of practice. Well, similar thing is true with meditation. You can do, uh, I don't know if exactly more harm than good, but certainly no good if you sit there and indulge in thoughts. You sit there and uh, waste your time. Come to think of it, that might be more harm than good. Anyway, uh, the story with Mekia is he comes back and gets a teaching from the Buddha and, and tries again. And that has to be the case for us as well. So one, one thing in particular I wanted to say about that is the place for joy in meditation. That uh, image of the dedicated practitioner, someone that really wants to do this right, sitting, unpleasant or unhelpful thoughts keep arising, and they get this face of grim determination to do the practice, right? I am gonna sit here, damn it, and grab mindfulness by the, by the scruff, shove it right in my face, 
and force myself to be mindful. Now, the Buddha did say that sometimes that's necessary, right? And I believe it is. There are moments where lacking mindfulness, you're going to do something that you deeply regret. You're going to yell at a person you really don't want to. You're going to drink something you really know you shouldn't drink. Or worse. There are moments where that kind of approach is necessary and right. But it is a kind of mental violence. It's the kind of thing that if you rely on too much will lead to, first of all, it just won't work very well. But second of all, that's not the kind of meditation that leads to deep states of joy and attainment. Buddha was very clear about this. Meditation is supposed to be joyful. It's supposed to be glad. It's supposed to be beautiful. Now, that doesn't mean that any meditation that doesn't do that is a waste of time. It takes practice sometimes to get there. But that is the goal. In the same way that playing the piano badly isn't the goal, but sometimes you have to go through a practice like that in order to get to a place where it does sound beautiful. The goal of meditation, nevertheless, is a space of beauty. Now, let me say, I'm not only talking about jhana. I was looking not too long ago at just kind of what stories people are interested in on simple suttas and the, the most viewed uh, still, uh, after all these years, are the, uh, are the posts on jhana. People are very interested in this, and rightfully so. But that doesn't have to be uh, meditation of that depth. You don't have to wait for jhana. You don't have to attain jhana to have joy in your meditation. I was listening to uh, an interview not too long ago with Sam Harris and Yuval Harari. I think that's his name. Uh, two very serious meditators who are big-time proponents of meditation. But uh, they were both saying that not only should the goal of meditation not be profound experiences of joy and peace and so on, but that if they found those things arising, they would cut it off. That's such a shame. I, I, uh, they can do what they want to, of course, but I feel sad to hear... Uh, them advocating for that approach to meditation when they have such a big audience and so many people will hear what they have to say about that and get the wrong impression. You should practice in the direction of gladness, of happiness, of joy in your meditation. You should practice in such a way that leads toward you... I was going to say craving, but you feeling a, uh, a sense of well, let me put it like this. There's that 
experience that you have when you go to uh, vacation, let's say. Not even vacation. After a long day of work, you sit down in your easy chair. You sit down on your couch. And that feeling of accomplishment, that feeling of job well done, and it makes that experience of sitting on that easy chair or whatever that much more relaxing. I've earned it. This is a good way to practice meditation. You should look at that cushion not as a place of torture, but as a place of ease, a place of peace. And one of the things that the Buddha suggested in order to make that happen is to reflect on the good that you've done. If you reflect on the good that you've done, that brings gladness. And that gladness leads to right states of mind for deep meditation. So while dialing up intense grabbing by the scruffed style of meditation might occasionally be necessary, by far the approach you'd rather have is sitting with ease, sitting with gladness, sitting in the memory of all of the beautiful things that you have done, not allowing yourself to spend too much time with the mistakes that you made, especially ones that are long gone by. Part of the reason why you would practice things like metta, karuna, mudita, is that it puts you in that state of mind that leads to gladness, that leads to joy, that leads to happiness. These are things you positively want to embrace in your meditation. That's what leads to depth. Not forcing yourself, not cajoling yourself, not silently yelling at yourself, but allowing yourself to be happy, to be at peace, to be joyful. That leads to more peace, to more joy, and to deeper meditation.